2: Catch up with our old friend John Wartime from Sports Illustrated. He is in Paris at the French Open. Lots going on with the French Open. And we're also going to talk about the NBA Finals, the Lakers and the Celtics. It is the NBA's dream matchup. We'll discuss that in segment three with John Wartime from Sports Illustrated. In segment four, Jack Nicholas, golf icon and CEO of the Nicholas Companies. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this interview. That's coming up in segment four, Jack Nicholas. A couple of other notes. Visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, I've done this show now for over four years, and I don't know that we've had a guest on who's any bigger than Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas of 18 majors. Now he's designing courses around the world This guy is an icon,
3: and he strikes at the content of this show. Well, yeah, I mean, aside from everything that he did on the course, he's doing so much off the course, like you just mentioned, All the course designs around the world, these huge influential courses, he's got his hand in. Aside from maybe Michael Jordan, I can't think of another athlete who's involved outside the sport after their playing days.
2: Well, Nicholas Design has done courses in 45 different countries. I mean, he's opening doors and introducing people all over the world to the game of golf. So he's doing stuff with the USGA and with the Royal Bank of Scotland. He's been an endorsee for them for a while. We'll talk about that with him, but... It is amazing to see, you know, we saw his impact on the course, but post-career, you know, now he's not really playing anymore, and he's still, this year I read where he's shot his age twice, he's 68, and he still can shoot a 68, that's pretty amazing, but this guy is just a bundle of energy, I hope he stays young forever, and he can continue to work as hard as he is, because he's just such a wonderful person. And, you know, he's a guy who has his priorities straight. He's been married to the same woman for years. He's got 21 grandkids.
3: This is a guy who does things the right way on and off the course. Well, yeah, he's just a class act. And any more, we love seeing class acts in sports. Lots of headlines coming up. Lakers-Celtics, NBA's dream matchup. Belmont Stakes,
2: Big Brown going for it all this weekend. The Triple Crown and the Detroit Red Wings They're very happy. Our producer, Bobby's very happy. They win the Stanley Cup. We'll talk about all that next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships.
0: Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's
2: time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, the NBA Finals are underway. It's the Lakers versus the Celtics back to the future. This is really the NBA's dream matchup. Historic teams, big stars, big TV markets. Very, very good news for them. Now, Nathan, in Los Angeles, They're making people buy tickets starting at $15,000 for next season to have the right to buy tickets for this series if they don't already have tickets. StubHub is indicating that the average resale price for the finals is $772 for a ticket in LA and $547 for a ticket in Boston. How does that compare to the prices last year?
3: Well, last year was $366 in Cleveland and $311 in San Antonio. So obviously a huge difference. Those are two completely different markets than the ones that we're talking about this season. But you're also looking at two completely different teams. I wouldn't pay $311 for a ticket in San Antonio. That's a boring game.
2: Well, neither would I. But I mean, it's just amazing how you put these two iconic teams with Kobe and KG and Ray Allen and Paul Gasol and, you know, all these stars. And that's what drives the big ticket prices. Now, this is such great news for the NBA, too. The last two years in a row, the ratings have been the worst they've ever been. And since the playoffs started, uh, business on NBA.com, com is up big. It's up almost 80%. And then, you know, just all the business around. Sponsorships are up for both teams. Merchandise sales are up for both teams. So, again, for the NBA... You know, we're in baseball season right now. People in the last few years haven't been paying attention to the finals. This year, they will pay attention to the finals. And after everything that happened last summer with Tim Donaghy and some of the other things that went on in the NBA, David Stern and ABC has to be thrilled.
3: Well, and you mentioned merchandise. I mean, with two iconic teams, a bitter rivalry over the years, the merchandise is a lot more valuable. I mean, you look a leather jacket featuring both the Lakers and the Celtics going for $1,500. I don't know that anybody would have paid that last year. San Antonio Cleveland is an exciting merchandise buy. We'll keep our eye on this series as it progresses. Our next headline, the Belmont Stakes. Big
2: Brown Equals Big Business. Big Brown makes a bid to become the first Triple Crown winner this weekend in 30 years. Hooters Restaurants, they signed on as a secondary sponsor for the horse. The deal follows an earlier preliminary primary sponsorship by UPS in observance of the Belmont Stakes. Hooters will be holding Big Brown Day on Saturday at its 440 restaurants so customers can watch the horse race. The deal includes logo placement on the pants and undershirt of jockey Ken DeSormo. So, you know, again, Big Brown could be the first Triple Crown winner and lots of money. We've talked about the stud fees, $50 million, just big business for this horse. Well, and you
3: have to look at the difference in ratings from last year to this year. Anytime you've got a horse going for the Triple Crown at the Belmonts, The ratings are going to go through the roof because people, the casual fan, is going to actually tune in. We will talk about the ratings next weekend. Our next headline, the Detroit Red Wings win the Stanley Cup.
2: NBC's coverage of Wednesday night's Red Wings-Penguins-Stanley Cup winning Game 6 earned a 4.4 overnight Nielsen rating. That's up 83% from last year. Overall, Nathan playoff ratings in the NHL up big time. NBC's ratings great versus had their best ratings ever. And the triple overtime game 5, I really think that's a game that are going to that's going to bring a lot of people back to the NHL cuz a lot of casual fans are like, "Oh, it's in overtime. Whoa, now it's in the second overtime. Wow, this is the third overtime. The game ended after midnight and a lot of the casual fans sat down and watched that game. And I
3: was one of those fans. You know, we talk, we bash the NHL a lot on the show, but I tuned in and that was a fantastic game from the game itself to the coverage that NBC did. It was good all around and I was interested. The whole time I did not change the channel once. And for me, I'm not a big hockey fan. That says a lot. So we'll see
2: what's in store for the NHL next year. We told you last week the Winter Classic could be at Wrigley Field. That would be a nice thing for them as well. Our final headline of the week. The IOC this week named Chicago as one of four finalists for the 2016 Summer Olympics, along with Tokyo, Rio de Janeiro, and Madrid, with the winning host city to be determined in October of 2009. Now, Tokyo earned the highest marks, followed closely by Madrid, with Chicago tied for third. Uh, Doha, Qatar uh, didn't make the final cut because of triple-digit summer temperatures. Rio de Janeiro then snuck in, and they wound up fourth.
3: Chicago's bid is pretty aggressive. I think they're a long shot at best for this, Nathan. Well, I agree. And, you know, London can't come quick enough with Beijing right now because London, I think, is going to be a much better host city, and it's an outside chance for Chicago. We'll have to stay tuned and see, but uh, I'm thinking Rio would be kind of hectic. Coming up next, John
2: Wartime from Sports Illustrated. He's going to join us from Paris, site of the French Open, and we'll also talk some NBA with him because he covers the NBA. Then in segment four, Sense golf icon Jack Nicklaus is going to join us. Very excited that we're going to have an opportunity to talk to Mr. Nicklaus. That's what's coming up. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
1: Let me talk. Let me talk. Let it
0: Or online at SportsBusinessRadio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is
2: John Wartime from Sports Illustrated. He's the senior writer there. He's appeared on our show several times. He is joining us from Paris, site of the French Open. John, thanks for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Anytime.
2: So how's everything there in Paris? Uh, Another exciting French Open uh, you know, Sharapova went out, but most of the top seeds have remained intact. Uh, give us a, a quick synopsis of uh, how things are going there in Paris.
1: It's been, you know, if, unless you uh, unless you only root for Americans, it's been great. If you're a big fan of American tennis, it's been a little rough. But, uh, you know, the, men's, the men are down to the semis, and we've got the top three seeds plus a Frenchman who... Uh, a Frenchman who does a soldier boy dance and loves the uh the Lakers. So uh no, so if you couldn't ask for more there and then on the women's draw it's been a little little weird, but uh you've got two players uh Denaris Afina, who's Murat Safin's younger sister, and you've got Anna Ivanovic. They're going to be in the finals, so we'll have a first-time winner, but no, it's it's been a pretty good pretty solid tournament overall.
2: Ivanovic is ranked number 1 now. She uh moves past Sharapova. Uh, some people in the United States aren't that familiar with her. Tell us about her and her game and where she's emerged from.
1: Uh, She's a young player from Serbia. I think, um, you know, I think to be honest that the WTA is rooting hard for her. She's, um, I don't know how to say this in a politically correct way, but I I think, you know, objectively she's, she's probably pretty easy on the eyes and she's a sort of cheerful player and speaks several languages. And I think, you know, I think they're kind of grooming her in that Sharapova model that they're hoping she's going to be another another sort of one of these crossover stars. Um, you know, her tennis isn't terribly interesting, but she's, uh, you know, I, I think if the WTA had their way, she would be, uh, you know, she would win this thing because they're sort of desperate for, for a new stars. a lot of players retiring. And, you know, I, I think um, she, she was in the New York Times magazine last week. She, they're trying to get her out there. So I think everybody's sort of rooting for her.
2: Yeah. And she has more and more endorsements. Uh, her portfolio is is growing as we speak on the men's side, you know, as we tape this, uh, Nadal and Federer, anytime you can get the two best players in the world playing each other in the final of a grand slam, that's good for TV ratings. And it's just good for business overall. But Nadal has really just been unstoppable, uh, at the French open.
1: Yeah. The guys never lost at this tournament. And, uh, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think a lot of people are are happy he's playing with Djokovic in the semis, and then sort of you get to the the one-two final, which would be, you know, this, this is basically the third third year in a row that you've got Federer and Nadal facing each other. But it's just, uh, you know, the, the guy's just a machine on clay, and this is sort of the one tournament that Federer's never won. It's sort of the one minor gap in his resume, and so you always have that storyline. But I mean. Nadal's level is just kind of drop way down for anyone to have a chance. With the way he's going, you know, I mean, we're we're talking uh, the day before the semis, but the way he's going right now, he's just been a machine. So I mean, we've
2: seen how dominant Federer's been. He's on his way to probably breaking Pete Sampras's record, maybe the greatest tennis player of all time. But Nadal just owns the clay surface. What does Nadal do to dominate on clay that uh, allows him to just, you know, no one can beat him?
1: No, it's it's a good question, and people sort of wonder why does his play drop off on the other surfaces on hard courts especially. And you know he grew up on this, so he sort of knows a lot of the tricks. But you know his game is based on this. It's sort of this retrieving game, and you know he's a, he's a lefty, which always gives you a, an advantage. But probably even more so on a, on a surface where you can run around the ball like he does. It, it just all clicks for him there. Um, you know he's he's sort of a he's a big husky. He's sort of got that LeBron James. Man, child, body, but um, but he but you know he he also is, is a really good defender as well. He's sort of a good you know re- retriever, which you can do easily on clay. He's he's just got this down, and you know he's still a strong player when the schedule moves to other surfaces. But he's he's really just you know pr- you know at this rate he's probably going to go down as the best clay quarter ever.
2: Uh, you cover tennis for Sports Illustrated. You write uh, regularly si dot com um, tennis. You know, we just talked at the beginning of this interview, if you're an American fan or a fan of American players, this isn't a tournament to tune into, but how's the state of tennis overall? I mean, you know, we see what it is over here in America, but around the world, you're in Europe right now, how is the game of tennis perceived?
1: Yeah, you know, they they sold out here and you you couldn't get a ticket to save your life tomorrow and half the country will watch this match, but it, You know, at some level, it's just a question of where the hot players are. That You know, France is a hot tennis country. I'm sure in Serbia today, tennis was the hottest thing going. You wish there were, you know, obviously the U.S. economy is bigger and can do more for a sport than the Serbian economy. So I think uh, the health of the sport would probably be better if there were more top players from the U.S. But I think, you know, it's one of these weird studies in globalization where the sport's big strength is that it's, it's everywhere and the players come from everywhere, but also in some ways it's the weakness. And NBC is going to air that, you know, they're going to air that women's final on Saturday. And I can't imagine the ratings uh, in the U.S. for Dinara Safina against Anna Ivanovic are going to be particularly high. You've got, you know, apart from the players, you've got you've got a time difference. And it's just, uh, you know, in some ways the sport might be better if it were like golf and it were regional and the American fans could really get to know these players. But, you know, on, on a global level, it's actually pretty successful. It's just the the U.S. is not the uh, the nerve center these days.
2: Well, and then you've got all these different governing bodies. I mean, you've got the USTA, you've got the French Tennis Federation, you've got, you know, the people at the uh, Royal Lawn and English in English uh, Tennis Club. I mean, all these different WTA. Um, how does everyone come together? I mean, it just seems like there's scheduling they conflicts and, and there's uh, uh, agendas that conflict.
1: You, you've you never seen infighting until you've covered the sport. No, I mean, it, it really hampers things. It just structurally, it's an absolute mess, and they all need, I mean, I think it's pretty clear they need a David Stern type to come in and just kind of lay down the law and get a lot of this petty politics out of the way and make some decisions, but nobody's willing to give up. Everybody pretty much agrees that the structure is screwed up, but nobody's willing to be the one to give up any ground. So, no, what, what you said is absolutely right. I mean, you've got this this alphabet soup and these competing organizations and every country has an agenda. I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of these, I said it once, I said it's like a swan that looks pretty good. I mean, the sport itself is very pretty and the players are cool. It sort of looks good on the surface. And then underneath you've got just, just ugliness. Um, it's, it's pretty, uh, you know, you've a lot of infighting going on. It's, it's not a pretty scene uh, sort of in the back rooms of the sport.
2: Wow. Hey, let's switch sports, and you also have covered the NBA for many years. we got to talk about the finals. Lakers, Celtics, it's back to the future. Uh, they haven't met up since, uh, what, 1988, so 20 years ago, and it was Bird, Magic, Kareem, Mikhail. Now you've got a different cast of characters. How do you see things uh, playing out? And this has got to be, I mean, from a business standpoint, this is bonkers for the nba i mean you get if you ask david stern at the beginning of the season pick two teams to put in the finals yeah. These would probably be the two teams he'd put in there
1: the uh you, you don't think you don't think detroit san antonio would get the same ratings as <laughs> this
2: no we've seen that one before and it was Isaiah, uh, a disaster Knicks. no
1: um no yeah. it, it's a, it's a great storyline it's um i mean you you tell me you know i've been over here you tell me who's who's guarding kobe i mean uh I, I think it's kind of his series to win or lose, in a sense. But, no, it's from a business perspective, you know, brutal summer from the NBA last summer, obviously. Right. Um, and, you know, you look since then, you look at the, even, even before this, you look at the playoff ratings, um, which I assume are only going to get stronger, and, you know, pr- pretty nice turnaround here. Um, and this is just, you know, getting the Celtics-Lakers in June is just kind of the capstone.
2: Yeah, I mean, the last two NBA Finals have been the two lowest NBA Finals TV-wise of all time. So, you know, LeBron couldn't get them better ratings last year. The year before, Detroit-San Antonio was uh, miserable. So now to be able to get a, a series with stars, I mean, that's what the NBA used to be like. It was like comic book characters, and now you've got Kobe and KG and Pierce and Gasol and you know ray allen and and all these superstars and that's what it looks like people tune in to watch and it doesn't hurt to have the second biggest market in the country playing uh in la either
1: yeah i i agree i mean i think the stars matter more than the market that um you know i mean the nets were in the finals against the lakers uh her you know when when was that in uh
2: gosh I mean, yeah several, in o- several 01, years ago. i think right
1: yeah in 01 or whatever um and uh y- you know i mean it's um Houston, not a small city. I, I think you're right. I think you know that having a big market team might get you those couple extra viewers in the the home team. But I think for most of the country, you're right. They want to see stars. And you've also, apart from the history, you've got two pretty dynamic coaches. And you're right. I mean, you've got you've got five A-list stars on the court at one time in the series. So uh, no, it, it should be good. You you hope it goes. Uh, yeah. I mean, you also yeah. The other thing to add is you've got the uh, you've got a good time zone situation too. Where you're you're spreading over three time zones, which hasn't always been the case. But no, it it should be uh it should be good. You hope it goes more than four games.
2: I look at two players in this series, and I really think ten years from now we're going to look back on this year and this series, and this series will define their careers. Kobe Bryant and Kevin Garnett. If Kobe right, Bryant right. can get his ring without Shaq, it really justifies his. Uh, status is one of the best players ever. If Kevin Garnett can get his first ring and and you know leave as a champion at some point and have that ring on his finger, that will cement his legacy. A lot at stake for both of those guys. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you sort of divide Kobe Bryant's uh, career into two halves, and we all know what the the point of demarcation is with that. Um, and you're right. I mean, this this I mean, Kobe's obviously won before and has some rings, but they've been under much different circumstances. This is. Unquestionably, his team and there's a image rehab going on. And then you're right with KG. I mean, you know, look look at his postseason career before this year. And uh, if he can finally win 10, 10, 11 years into the league, that's um, you know, that's 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 one of, that sort of takes his career to a new level too. I think.
2: Last question. Uh, you know, I look at the GMs here. Uh, Mitch Kupchak of the Lakers, Danny Ainge of the Celtics Danny Ainge, I mean the Celtics were left for dead last year Especially after they didn't get the number one pick in the draft After they had the best odds The Lakers, at the beginning of this year They look like a decent team on paper But then Paul Gasol drops on their lap And now you have these two teams in the finals You've got to tip your hat to Kupchak and Ainge After really receiving a lot of criticism last year
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think you know. I think these guys would admit to it that they're both, uh, you know, their their employment was not particularly assured uh, twelve months ago. Um, Nice, nice comeback for both of those guys too. That's that's a good storyline too. I I hadn't thought of. I agree. Well,
2: John, uh, enjoy yourself in Paris and the rest of the French Open. It's always good to catch up with you, and we appreciate you making the time for us on Sports Business Radio.
1: Pleasure anytime.
2: You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. And the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio.
0: One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio.
2: My guest is Jack Nicholas. He's the winner of a record 18 major championships. He's the CEO of the Nicholas Company and a Goodwill Ambassador for the game of golf. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My
4: pleasure, Brian.
2: So i got to tell you, in doing my research for this interview, I was struck by what an amazingly busy schedule you keep. You just finished hosting the memorial. You're the head of the Nicholas Companies. You travel to dozens of countries every year designing courses for Nicholas Design, and you somehow find time to spend quality time with your wife, your children, your 21 grandchildren. You seem to be working more now than you were when you were playing regularly. Where do you get all this energy? (laughs)
4: If I don't, if I don't keep the energy up, you know, you, they they put you away, <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of, or they farm you out or something. Brian, I, I don't know. I've always had energy. I've always been sort of uh, one of those kids when I was growing up that I got up in the morning and I came in at night, and my mom grabbed my ears, you know, right. And uh, but I, that's, I've always had to be doing something, and I, you know, people always say, "Well, gosh, you know, you, how do you do all this stuff?" I said, "Well." You know, you've got to remember, I was playing 25 weeks a year. I was traveling tournament golf and spending a week at a place. I don't do that anymore, and I've got 25 free weeks now. Right. And uh, so I'm going to fill them. I, I enjoyed filling them up and working and doing things. And it's, uh, you know, most people work all their life to retire to play golf. I play golf all my life to retire to work. Right. And so, and so I kind of enjoy that. And I've got, the grandkids are growing up. My, my oldest just graduated from high school last last week, and so, uh, we're not. Uh, I'm, I'm watching them with high school athletics, and I'll watch some of them at college and in, in the future. And so, we're, uh, we're we're pretty active. It's
2: an exciting time for you, I'm sure. You're an incredible goodwill ambassador for the game of golf. You remain close to the United States Golf Association as an endorsee of the Royal Bank of Scotland. You've entered into a deal that puts the USGA and the RBS together in a business relationship. The four-year agreement with the USGA features a number of components that will be integrated across all USGA championships, including the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open. So now RBS has ties to three of golf's four majors, as the official patron sponsor of the British Open Championship and the PGA Championship. Can you explain this new partnership between the RBS and the UGA and what your role is going to be uh, going forward?
4: Well, you know, the RBS has been involved with the British Open for over 100 years. Right, and they they part of what they they uh, have done. They've been a you know they were called where well, they were still are the Royal Bank of Scotland. They felt like Royal Bank of Scotland was a little bit restrictive, uh, since they, they became the uh, I think I think the third largest bank in Europe, and now they're the fourth largest bank in the world, or the sixth largest bank in the United States. And my role was to help them trans the transition from the Royal Bank of Scotland to RBS. And they used me as that vehicle. And so uh, through the advertising and promotion of um, my involvement with them, uh, you know, I think a lot of people realize that, that RBS is a pretty significant uh, player in the United States today.
2: Absolutely. And, so,
4: and part of that has been all through the game of golf. So the natural relationship of being involved with the British Open uh, they wanted to expand that to be involved with golf's best, so they want to be involved with the USGA and the PGA and, and and their championships also, and they are. And you know, I'm sort of that vehicle to uh, bring them together from the game of golf. And uh, it's been a very nice relationship. It's been great for me, and, I, and I'm sure it's been great for RBS, or they wouldn't continue to have me.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. I love the commercials that they've done with you, too. I think those are great. You know, I look at what you've done and just what you've meant to the game of golf, not only when you played, but now you have Nicholas Design. It's an incredibly successful golf course design company. You've designed courses in 45 countries around the world. There's 300 Nicholas courses. Uh, You're designing 100 more. And between what you're doing with the USGA to promote the game of golf and these courses you're designing, what a legacy you're leaving for future golfers.
4: Well, you know, it's a game that gave me so much, and it's a game that uh, I want to continue to be part of and continue to grow with it. Uh, one of the neat things about the things I'm doing is that uh, you know we're actually working in 29 new countries now, as well as all the other countries we've been working in. Wow! And you know, we go into these countries, and, and a lot of them we're the first golf course in that country. That's got to be fun. And to have the op- the op- the opportunity to form the sh- the and uh, and, can, and sort of uh, formulate the sh- the shape of what that game is going to be in that country, and its future is is kind of is kind of fun to go into into mostly Eastern Bloc now with this country going into Russia, Poland, you know, uh, Bulgaria, Ukraine, all all the way down through uh, Romania, and Czech Republic, so forth and so on. Uh, all those are all new places, and you know, to they all will, will grow up now on a pretty decent golf course, and and the young people that come from there will be able to compete around the world and uh, make the game more of a global game, continue to grow it. And uh, that's kind of fun to be part of that.
2: I've got to ask you a question as a designer. You're the greatest golfer who ever lives. So when you're designing a course, how do you put yourself in someone like my shoes? I'm a duffer. And when you're designing these holes, how do you think in terms of someone like me instead of Jack Nicklaus, greatest golfer who ever played?
4: Well, I think that you... Uh, you know, I've done. Uh, we've done over 300 golf courses, so I think when you start to look at it, you pretty well figure out that who's going to play it. And you know, only 1.8 percent of your play is played from the back tees. Hmm. So you're really designing the golf course for 98.2 percent of the people. And so you really better be designing from the member's tees because that's where your bread and butter comes from. And so you've got to figure out how do, they, how do the average golfer hit it, how do, how do the women hit it, how do juniors, how do beginners. You've got to try to figure out how that's going to work and you just keep, keep working with it and try to play them around. I mean, some of the first golf courses I did were very difficult golf courses because they were done for tournament golf. Right. And, uh, you know, like Newfield is, is a difficult golf course, Shoal Creek, Castle Pines, they they're all done for tournament golf. Well, then, then all of a sudden I, I figured out, I said, you know, I'm really not designing this golf course for one week a year. I should be designing this golf course for 51 weeks a year. Right. And adapting it to a tournament. I think if I look back at Augusta, I think Augusta was that. Augusta is a wonderful golf course. It's a wonderful member's golf course. All they did was move the tees back and hide the pins, and they played the Masters. So that philosophy, I've always thought, has been pretty darn good. And, you know, it worked for the Masters and was successful. Why not try to, try to take it forward? So I try to look at that kind of a, kind of a thing and what I'm designing. And I think it's... Uh, I think it's been successful. We we sometimes don't don't get it right every time, but a lot of times we do. And uh, I think we've got a lot of people that uh, have enjoyed our golf courses, and enjoy uh, uh, playing them, and and and, uh, and living there. So it's uh, uh and it's and it's been fun to be able to be part of it.
2: I would imagine that people find you if someone wants to hire Jack Nicholas to design their course. How does that process take place? I mean, I see your website, and obviously you've got a pristine reputation, but. You know these people in third block countries, Eastern block countries. How do they find you and bring you in to design their courses?
4: Well, they they, they figure it out somehow. They, <laughs> they get they get to us, and you know most of the stuff comes into the office. Although we do have we have an we I have an office in Moscow, and I got an office in hmm. Brussels. I got an office in uh, Seoul, an office in Hong Kong, in Beijing, uh, 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 South Africa. Uh, representatives in Argentina and i mean, 've got people in all parts of the world, and so you know they, and and we we 're doing golf courses in all parts of the world, so people generally figure out that hey jack 's doing a golf course in uh, in china we ought to be able to figure out where's doing China? We talk to those people or we talk to we 're doing a golf course in Russia. How do we talk to those people over if we want one in in Bulgaria, you know, I mean, they, they figure out how to get to us other, otherwise, and our people are always uh, prospecting. And frankly, you know, the Internet's been a great source of our business. Hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, 10 years ago we got, oh, maybe 5% of our leads off of the Internet, and I'd say today we probably get 60%, 70% of our leads off the Internet.
2: Wow, that's amazing. I would have never guessed that.
4: I wouldn't have either, but it,
2: it actually is a fact. That's great. My guest is Jack Nicholas. Mr. Nicholas, there's lots of talk, obviously, about Tiger Woods eventually breaking your record of 18 major championships. Tiger sits at 13 right now as we speak. A remarkable stat that very few people realize is that you finished second 19 times out of the 162 majors you played in. So if you won half of those... You'd have 28 major championships. I think what Tiger's doing is incredible, but I mean, let's be realistic here. If you had 28 majors, we wouldn't talk about Tiger breaking your record at all. Who faced the stiffer competition, you or Tiger? For my well, for my vote, I, you did.
4: Well, thank you. I, but first of all, I failed 19 times. Then that's sort of the way I look at it, uh, Brian. I mean, I I got I got beat I failed 19 times where I where I came close, and I I won 18 times. So. Uh, but but you know you 're going to lose sometimes when you're in, when you're in contention and you 're going and I think that the con the, the competition that I had i think there it was very difficult i mean and the the reason I think it was difficult is because we had fewer really good players and but the what the good players we had all learned how to win and they'd all won five six seven eight nine majors you know Arnold and Gary and uh, Trevino and Watson those guys all knew how to win and if i was if I slipped up, they were ready to play. Uh, the problem today is that we have we have Tiger and then we have so many other really really good players, but there's just not enough. They don't get enough exposure of winning to really uh, feel confident coming down the stretch that they're going to make it happen. So, I, I don't know really how to answer the question properly. Uh, you know, there are probably more good players today, but yet uh, ours had had the experience to learn how to win. So it's just it's you know you just, you, you don't know really what is right.
2: We hear the story about a young tiger taping a sheet with your stats on his bedroom wall and kind of being fixated on catching you someday. Who was the guy that you were maybe fixated on? Was it Arnold Palmer as you were growing up, and you said that's who I want to be or that's who I want to break all of his records?
4: Well, Bobby Jones actually was. I, I, Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open at Scioto in 1926. And I grew up inside. I started playing golf course in 1950, and there were many golfers that are members of that club that were there when Jones won, inclu- including my father. And uh, uh, so I never heard anything other but Jones, Jones, Jones. And I never really thought anything about breaking any records. It was never. We didn't have that kind of pressure. Tigers had it on from day one. But, I mean, it wasn't until 1970 and I won my 10th major, that I walked in the press room, and Bob Green of the AP said, Jack, that's... Ten majors you won now. Congratulations! You only got three more to tie Bobby Jones. I said, "What? I mean, I, to be very honest with you. I had never counted them. I never even dreamed of it. Never even entered my mind." And I said, "I never thought Bobby Jones thirteen majors was was it was uh, you know approachable." And then all of a sudden, I, I was three away from it. But then I actually focused on it, and uh, then when I focused on it, and I got past it, and uh, you know, I, I just played, uh, tried to win what I could after that, and. Uh, uh, but you pretty much, you know, once you pass something, you lose your drive to go on. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to play golf. I just didn't, uh, I, I didn't drive as hard as I did when I was younger. But uh, you know, I'm, my record is what it is. I certainly, I, I certainly wish. Uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with what it is. Do I wish it was more? Sure. Now I do. Sure. But how did I know Bob? How did I know Tiger Woods was going to come along? Or how did Bobby Jones know Jack Nicholas was going to come along? You know, it it really isn't. It really isn't important. Uh, Tiger is a great player. He's uh, he's doing and dominating the game today. He's uh, he's a nice young man. He uh, handles himself well. The game's in good hands. So. If he breaks my record, you know, more power to him. I just want to be the first one to shake his hand. And obviously nobody wants their records to be broken, but, you know, I think it brings more excitement into the game to have uh, have Tiger chasing my record. Obviously, it puts my name in the newspaper every day right beside his. So, sure. you know, it's not, it's not all that bad for me either. So, uh, But it's, uh, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of fun to watch him play. He's, just, he's a very, very talented young man and uh, uh, fun to watch.
2: One of the things that's so different, obviously, today is compared to when you played, the prize money. I mean, Tigers made $93 million on the (laughs) tour. You won 113 tournaments, and you earned a little bit less than $6 million in your entire career on the tour. Obviously, I would guess you're earning a lot more than that with Nicholas Design and your other endeavors now, but do you ever look back and just go, gosh, I played in the wrong era. I could be making a lot more money now with 113 victories.
4: Well, I think Ben Hogan actually looked like he thought maybe he played in the wrong era. Yeah, no I kidding. His, his total, I think his total lifetime earnings were like 241000 Wow. So, I mean, if you really look at that, I mean, it's just times change. And, you know, I, what I look at is I think that the kids today are really blessed. They have the opportunity to play golf for a living. And we played golf and had to be successful so we could go make a living. You know, I mean, with outside things, you never made a living on a golf course when we played. Right. And today the kids can actually play play golf and, and, and don't have to do anything else. They can play golf and make a living. That's, and I think that's neat. And we were the forerunners of that. We, uh, You know, the group in front of us, the, 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 uh, the Hogans and the Nelsons and the Sneeds, uh, were the forerunners of that. And then we came in, and then we were the ones that started to get it to the next level. And then Tiger and his group were taking it to the next level. And I think it's, I think it's great for the game.
2: Jack, Father's Day is next weekend. All four of your sons work for you, and you won your last major in 1986, the Masters, with your son Jack carrying your bag for you. That had to have been a wonderful thrill. Talk about the wonderful bond that you've built with your sons. You know, honestly, I see a lot of athletes who play, and they're so involved in their athletic endeavors that their relationship with their family suffers, and I've got to tip my hat to you because you seem like you're so close with your family, and I think that's just so admirable.
4: Well, that's always been the most important thing in my life, Brian. I'm my wife and I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio. We both have same same values. We both felt like we both came from close families, and we both felt like family was the most important thing. And you know, I know I I probably could have won a lot more tournaments if I'd if I would have sort of been selfish enough to leave my family. But I just didn't want to do that. My family is what I wanted to be part of, and uh, my kids are all working with me. They're all. Doing things that are similar to what I do, they they're all trying to handle their kids the way uh, you know I handle them, which makes me proud. Uh, you know, I've, I've got I've got a good group of kids, and uh, they uh, uh, and they're good citizens, and they and they do well. And i and I think that's what my wife and I are most proud of.
2: Right. I mean, it's just it's, it's such a wonderful trait and quality that you have, and think of all the the generations that you've affected. Last question for you. Obviously, you've played the game of golf all your life. Uh, you've been there with golf during some incredibly joyous moments, like we discussed with the 1986 Masters. But golf has been an outlet for you for some incredibly somber moments as well. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we play pay close enough attention?
4: Well, I think the game the game is a a game that you you, you get out of it what you put into it, and you get uh, uh, you know you, you get you develop relationships with people. I think you play eighteen holes of golf with somebody you get to know them pretty well
2: you're exactly uh, right
4: yeah you you know what, what kind of a sport they are you know what kind of a personality they got you know whether they're a hothead or or whether they, they they'll, they'll enjoy the game for the game or they're or they're or they're just they're driven by total competition or they're driven for greed or whatever they're driven by and you find that out pretty quickly on the golf course so it's a it's a great game for that it's a great game for for people it's a great game for 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 a Father to play with a son. It's a great game for a grandfather to play with his grandson or granddaughter, and you know it can be played by all walks of life and people of all handicaps and all abilities. It's it's just a marvelous game, and it's uh, there's not many games like that. Uh, so uh, to be to be fortunate enough to be involved in that game all my life has been a very very special thing for me. And it's uh, uh, you know if it, and you meet the same people on the way down that you meet on the way way up, Brian. You you know that and. Uh, so you better you better watch your Ps and Qs on the way up because you're gonna have to have to either, either you're gonna have to eat them on the way down if you haven't handled it right.
2: Well, it's great, great advice, and uh, it's such an honor to speak with you. You've always conducted yourself in such a wonderful manner on and off the course, and I really wish you the best in all of your endeavors moving forward. Thank you, Brian. Nice to talk with you. Good to talk to you too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
1: Let me see what spring is like on.
3: At Jupiter and Mars.
2: Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training monitoring and feedback, We'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at
0: sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com.
2: Back for our final segment on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. Great interview with jack nicholas one of my favorite interviews that i've ever done on this show if you missed it and you want to listen to it on demand go to sportsbusinessradio.com click over the podcast page and you can see the interviews page and we have it posted in interviews so you can listen to all of our shows all of our best interviews on demand just go to sportsbusinessradio.com all right nathan adidas the celtics and celtics forward kevin garnett have launched a limited edition version of Garnett's 2008-2009 Adidas Team Signature Commander Shoe. This to coincide with the Celtics' appearance in the NBA
3: Finals. Give us some of the details. Well, some of the details. First of all, this is the most expensive shoe I've ever heard of. They're going to retail at $1,017 beginning this weekend. And Adidas will produce just eight pairs of the shoe Per game, So there's only going to be a select few available, obviously a collector's dream for something like this. All profits from the sale on the shoes will go to NBA Cares partners in the Boston area, so they go towards a good cause worth spending the uh, almost $1,100 for the shoes. Now the other thing I think is kind of cool about these
2: shoes, it features references to the late Malik Seeley and Baseball Hall of Famer Kirby Puckett. Garnett was close with both of those guys. And, you know, he played in Minnesota where Pocket played, and he was a teammate of Malik Seeley. So I think it's cool that they've got that reference in there as well. I think it, frankly, makes it even more authentic. And, of course, it's terrific that the uh, proceeds are going to NBA Cares. Lakers-Celtics, you know, We'll talk about the TV ratings next week, but again, this is just such a boon for the NBA because if David Stern and ABC could have picked the matchup they wanted at the beginning of the year, this probably would have been it. And you can't say enough about the job that Mitch Kupchak and Danny Ainge have done as GMs. We talked about that with John Wartime.
3: A year ago, not
2: many people would have picked these two teams for the finals, and here they are.
3: Yeah, you know, I would have argued maybe Phoenix, but I still think that L.A. is a bigger market, That obviously a bigger market than Phoenix is. So this is the iconic matchup, and you have exciting players. That's what you don't get out of San Antonio. You got flashy players like Kobe Bryant and Kevin Garnett, so great matchup.
2: Lots of thank yous on our show. Of course, Jack Nicholas, Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses. Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere for the Morton's nearest you. Go online to mortons.com. Jack Nicholas will enjoy eating at Morton's on us. John Wartime from Sports Illustrated. Our show staff, Nathan Roach. Bobby Corser. Josh Blank. Darren Peck. Ron Barr. James Harris and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's the Steakhouse. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. ProTrade.com and Evergreen Media Training, a podcast reminder. You can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to SportsBusinessRadio.com. Look for that Jack Nicholas interview in the podcast section under interviews. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend on Sports Business Radio.